Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today's moment that Alex has chosen is from the opening chorus of Cantata 103, Ihr und Heulen. What is going on with this cantata? <laughs> I love this. It's very strange. It's wild. This is like an elite level opening chorus for a cantata in terms of its complexity for Bach. And that is saying something for Bach. In setting this text, you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. Bach immediately has some amazing, almost exaggerated contrast between moods here that he can use. And then the second part of the text also has just another amazing contrast there with the, ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned to joy. I think Bach thrives in this chromaticism that he gets to do with weeping and lamenting and sorrow type of music, um, as well as his joyful stuff, but he he makes it live in the dissonance for this first movement for most of it. But I want to jump right into this because I don't want to undersell the complexity here. I hope you can tell, listener, that we are, even with as much Bach as we talk on this podcast, we are surprised by this opening chorus here. It's it's just on another level. First of all, there's something a little bit unique about the instrumentation, right, Christian? Yeah, a little tiny recorder. Yeah, and two oboes. That's oboes d'amour, actually, which sound pretty similar, I think, to our modern ears as the regular Baroque oboe. And then your typical violin one, two, viola, and then a four-part choir with continuo. Now. There's also a trumpet, but it doesn't come in until a later movement. Although I do want to talk about that when we get there, because there's something kind of cool about that. But just at the beginning here, we get these sort of stabbing motions here. Bum, da, da, da. In the strings and the little da, 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 the little filigree happens in the oboes. While we're getting a pedal point high note on the recorder. So immediately you have a three-part texture where every part of it has a different articulation. Then in the next two bars, the recorder is the one bouncing around, while the extra filigree stuff gets passed around between the violins, viola, and the oboes. There's just, there's just a lot of texture complexity going on. Listen to these two bars and listen specifically for the recorder sound that sounds like this. And then here, the string is going like this. 
that kind of thing. So we get these differing textures just within the first four bars. This is a texture that reminds me a lot of the opening of Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 4. Yeah, totally. You have a recorder holding out a note, or in that case it's two recorders, versus other things happening below. And then they switch, or then the recorder's active. Now, the key and the instrumentation even, and even the type of recorder, those things are all different. But what's similar is the texture. And it's not just the texture, but it's also the bass motion in the first three bars. Oh yeah, it is. That's probably why it reminded you. It's that exact same like... Just those simple chordal structures. I think it goes down in the in the Brandenburg though, and it's major, but that's kind of interesting how it's, how it's opposite. Yeah, the differences are enough to make it feel like a totally different affect, but it really is so similar in those ways. And what I think is cool about this is now that Bach has established these two measure little phrases that he's going to pass off the textural interest, and of course this is all before the choir comes in, so this is all an intro still. But the harmonic way that he gets us ready for the choir entrance is by way of B minor then to G major, which is the six, which is unusual. Then E minor, which is the four, that leads us into the dominant of F sharp, an F sharp major triad. Now that's starting to feel more normal because that's gonna lead us right into B. So let's hear how that works. He starts us on B minor. Now the next four bars feel like G. Now, for a little while, we're going to feel like E, although the bass is going to move us along down a step. A lot of motion happening in the high notes and on the bass now. And there's F sharp in the bass, a pedal point now for a while. Finally, we hear the bass taking that pedal point. First time the bass has got to relax. Now we can feel that we're coming to the conclusion of the intro. Ramping up the tension here. Okay, we're gonna pause here and listen to the string and oboe texture. It's so cool. It's just these little light eighth notes, bum bum, little pairs. Bum bum, bum bum, bum bum, right? But then as soon as the bass starts moving, then turn your ear to the violins and oboes and they're starting to move a little more to da da dun instead of dun dun. Little subtle ways that Bach is communicating this like increased tension here. And then the choir gets to their entrance finally. So even just that introduction, I could probably expound on this longer, but I want to get to the meat of the choral stuff too, so we can't take forever on this first part. But Christian, what do you think? What else strikes you about this intro? There's some pretty experimental voicing of chords right before the tenors enter, two bars before that, where you mentioned, Alex, that the pedal point ended and the bass line became active. 
Mm. The oboes and strings hold out a chord. The voicing of this chord is very unusual, maybe even bizarre. The viola is even high up there. The strings are higher and the oboes are taking the low pitch there. Mm. Yeah, that's really weird. But I didn't notice it the first time because the players of this ensemble are so professional that they're not going to make that low B sound like honky or anything. It's going to sound good. And sometimes the sort of level of polish that we are used to with our classical music actually makes us miss interesting orchestrational choices because players are just too good. You know, <laughs> like they just play it well. But I think if this sounded a little like more raw, it would be more interesting, even though it might not be as clean. But the strings are up high, yeah, and, and the oboes get that low note, and it's pretty remarkable. And that leads us into the cadence that brings us into the choir entrance. And the whole thing is, I think, purposefully off-kilter because it has to express the, both of the moods. That's what I think is so brilliant about this opening chorus is that it's going to have to express sadness and joy at the exact same time, not just one after the other. How is he going to do that? And the text about you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. That's interesting. And the weeping and lamenting is, as we said, part of that chromatic stuff is and there were a lot of times for weeping and lamenting you would have expected a slow tempo piece so this is an interesting choice by Bach in the first place and then when he gets to the world shall rejoice stuff in the choir that dun 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 thing which he uses in major key stuff all the time to represent joy it's a motive that he uses all the time so in the sorrow in the weeping literally on the word weep we get this like really crunchy melody and it happens in every voice when they enter and listeners note that all four choir entrances happen imitatively just like you expect from Bach the first one happens in the tonic that's the tenor voice here then the next the dominant then next the tonic then next the dominant if you know music you're like yes this is normal but the reason I bring this up is because later he will subvert it in a really interesting way. And for now, he's following the a little bit more of a normal case here. Now, when the choir enters, the material, the musical material is nothing like the intro, right? Sometimes he at least gives us something similar, but this is not like that. This is totally different. Now the choir, as it enters, the tenors have that melody that I just sung for you, the weeping one. The strings, plus continue, just have bum, 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 sort of quarter notes with some rests in the middle of the bars. And then the wind instruments get sort of rising and falling smooth lines up, up on top there. The texture is just like never static. But the thing that the recorder has right there that's in common with the voice is that weird lament going down seems to be the opposite motion of a very strange chromatic ascent in the recorder on that first measure. Yeah. I, I firmly believe that Handel, with this text, would have done something really cool, but not as immediately complex 
and that would have made it more palatable. <laughs> you know what I mean? This piece is this piece is not easy to listen to, and it takes like three or four listens before you're even clocking half the stuff that's happening, much less noticing any textural stuff. But I think that if you listen to this beginning part by just listening for the tenor voice plus like hearing the chordal structure of the continuo, that's enough for your ears. The recorder stuff almost like sounds like it's in the way, like it's like it's too much. And this is the thing that I don't know if we've talked about in Bach because we always talk about that we love the complexity. And I think that Christian, you and I agree on this, that we we would rather have the thing be more complex and interesting and and to serve repeat listenings, keeping the interest in box, setting the text in interesting ways. And like, I want that cool chromatic recorder thing that happened right there. You know, I want that. But it's like, sometimes I wonder, like if this is, Bach is considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest composer of all time by some people. But I wonder if like the people who don't think he's their favorite, a lot of it is because of this type of thing. Like the overly complex stuff. And this is what, it's not just, now, this is what the music critics of the time were saying about Bach, or especially of the generation after Bach when the simpler Gallant style was coming into vogue. Everybody was like, oh, that old Bach, what about all that weird complex stuff? That's not that's not what we like right now, you know? Yeah, it's because Bach showed complexity in an uncomfortable way with the counterpoint. Or he showed, rather, he expressed like sadness themes that way. Yeah. Whereas like Mozart, like in the Mozart Requiem, some of the most haunting stuff like the lacrimosa is just absolutely gorgeous gorgeous in that it's good music but also that's not really the same thing as it being truly terrifying which i guess it's kind of like ponderous and serious and big but it's not like chaotic in the way that a bach contrapuntal chorus is yeah i guess it's like are you scared by the confutatis because it has intensity of of musical texture because it has that thing because it sounds a little more cinematic to our ears, I guess. And maybe just because we know that piece really well, because it gets used in a lot of media. Or are you more like me, who is like freaked out by like the infinite quality of the universe, who like, you know, who can't fathom the immense distances between the earth and the other planets, you know, that kind of thing, who, who is more scared of high complexity and who, who like the, the sort of primal fear in me comes out when I when not i don't know about fear but like the way the music is painting fear really hits me when i hear something like this because there's oh my goodness there is a lot going on and it, it's hard to process you know and it's all complicated and chromatic and it's all going everywhere and that to me symbolizes the distress of what the text is about a lot more than mozart as you say christian yeah it is it is sort of like the mozart requiem is more scoring whereas the box stuff is the music is it it's that it couldn't be the background for anything. The music is what does it to you. And that was very intentional because Bach was extremely devout and he was passionate about all the themes. And his goal was not always to make you listen to beautiful music or for you to like it. It was more for you to understand vividly the themes. And if that theme was suffering, then so be it. And in this case, it's more complex than that even because it's like suffering plus joy. But that's that's the power of Bach that no one else really really gets that I that I can really think of. I mean, that's the kind of thing that doesn't that you don't really see again the way that that music makes you feel until like into the 20th century, until like Lutoslavsky or Penderecki or something like that. Yeah, or Ligeti, where things can really just get to you and just make you feel an unease that only music that's trying to be like that can do. Not music that's just trying to 
be the background for a for an idea but music that just fully is weird yeah the text here by the way is really cool it's by Christiana Mariana von Ziegler and Bach used her text for nine consecutive cantatas in this period and I guess I wish it was more than nine but some some of the Bach librettos the words are just kind of whatever but this is not one of those and what he did with it is just amazing Christian, you mentioned the recorder on the very first measure of the choir entrance. You mentioned the recorder stepping up in this little chromatic motif. And then it goes down. And then it goes down, and the, well, the oboes go down, right? But the recorder, yeah, the recorder eventually comes down, and then the tenor part after the subject, the tenor part gets in the counter subject, it gets a falling motion also that's chromatic. And then the other voices get that too as they get to their counter subject. And this little this little phrase, this subject of the of the fugal subject. It's really interesting because of the intervals used. The first one is a half step. Then the jump is an augmented second, then another half step. But then it's a leap of a minor seven. So it's basically breaking all the, the standard rules for something that, was, that would sound harmonious and doing that. He's doing that on purpose, of course. He's intending to sound this way. Yeah. Pained. Sound pained. This, like, this set of five notes here just kind of sounds like almost non-Western. Yeah, it sounds, yeah. When you play that last one down the octave, it definitely has an interesting non-Western flavor. And actually, he will do it that way later, which again, it's oh, just yeah, like, this is will. one of the things about this, this cantata opening that's just stunning to me. But anyway, unless we want to talk about it for, for several hours, we better move through this a little, uh, a little faster. And I think one of the things that I love the most about this first section before we get to the middle section, which contains, I think, my favorite moment. One of the things I love is you get the recorder pedal points again on the words that's the first entrance of the words but the world shall rejoice and on the on the Freya that's rejoice and that's the dun 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 dun, dun. you hear the tenor and soprano singing that while the recorder holds out a note but now we're getting that material from the intro again he's he's able to reuse that now it all ties the whole thing thematically together. After another fugal entrance of the main theme that starts in the bass this time, with more recorder sort of filigree happening above it, because again Bach is not content to repeat. So this is totally different texturally now, this second fugal entrance. And not just that, but the strings now get to be a part of this little fugal texture this time. And they weren't before. But the recorder is kind of joyful now. It is, because now we've had that other text, right? And then the counter subject in the choir is not the same anymore. Now it's different. It's this faster 16th thing that's like way more difficult. And speaks to, as many of these Bach cantatas do, 
the extreme level of difficulty of the vocal parts of Bach cantatas. Another thing we can't overstate. This music is hard to sing, and is it hard to sing. You basically have to have the facility of an instrumentalist with your voice. And this is the text together. Alex, this is where it all comes yes. together. He's been building to this, actually. Yes. Where in this second fugue, the first fugue was, Ihr werdet weinen und heulen. You shall weep and lament. Right. And that's what also the counter subject was. Now... That is the subject, but the counter subject is Aber die Welt wird sich freuen, but the world shall rejoice. And so every time someone enters, they're weeping and lamenting. And behind them and around them, the world is rejoicing. Simultaneous occurrence of these things. It's very complicated and strange. Yeah. And then at the height of the complexity of the chorale, we get a recorder entrance of the subject up high there, you know. So then the recorder sits way up high as we make our way into the uh, the closing part of this fugal stuff. And then the sort of coda of the fugue here is going to happen, and this will happen here, and it will also happen at the once more at the end of the movement after an interlude. But so this coda happens with these descending thirds, these descending triads on Ihr werdet. It's this in the soprano. Then the altos come in. So it's... And then the tenor and bass follow. And that really makes us feel like we're coming to a conclusion here with a pedal point C-sharp, which basically will land us right on F-sharp. Which means that we are firmly established in the dominant key now, which I think is pretty expected because this isn't the final one, right? And so we land on F-sharp. But we land... And here's the most surprising thing about this movement, I think the thing that anybody talks about when they talk about this movement, unless they're talking about the recorder, which is pretty remarkable. But here, it's this middle section, suddenly marked adagio, and it's only eight measures long. In this section, we get the middle line of the five lines of text, and you shall be sorrowful. It's a bass section, but it's almost like a recitative. In fact, it basically functions as a recitative. Yeah, the structure is strange because it's it's like a middle section as a recitative, as arioso. In the recording that we have from the Netherlands Bach Society, they actually use the whole bass section, which is unusual. But it's kind of like between a recitative and a middle section of a chorus. But it, yeah. It's both of those things. And I mean, because it's the bass... You could say this is maybe the voice of Jesus. I mean, this entire text is pretty much paraphrased from a quote from Jesus, from the Gospel of John. So this middle section basically is Jesus talking to us. And on those words, that traurig sein thing, every time he treats that a little bit differently. Traurig sein. Interesting. Again, these, these intervals are just so unusual. Then the next one, 
Here's where it gets wild. We're laying out a fully diminished chord. Where does he go with that? But... Interesting. So it gets us in a very backwards way into this like E major thing that sets up A. So we land on A minor, solidly on A minor, right at the entrance of the fast tempo again, which, as you might remember, is not the key we started in, which was B minor, and that's weird. I mean, like, that's not even close. Like, you'd expect F sharp or maybe E or B. A is the next one farther away from that, and it's, it's not like it's terribly far, but it's still pretty unusual. So then how would he get us back to B? And here's my favorite sort of hidden thing about this piece. And that is this next little fugal entrance thing. He's going to give us the next words here, more words about sorrow, right? The fourth line of text. But he's going to give it to us with the same fugal subject as before with one particular interesting change. And when he does, he's going to give it to us in A minor. And then E minor. And then B minor. And then E minor. So that's not how you do fugues, Bach. <laughs> that's not right, okay? And of course, of course, he gets to set his rules here. And he does this to get us back around into the key eventually, but it like makes it, it gives it a really interesting flavor. But listen to the entrances of the choirs as they do this fugal subject this time. There is one major difference. And it is the fifth note of that five note phrase that we heard earlier. And this time the fifth note is low. It's an octave lower. Which makes the rest of the phrase end lower. So why do you think Bach did that, Christian? What was the point of that? Why change it this time? Is it just because the keys are a little different this time so that works better in the range? Because I no. don't think he had to do that. He could have done that differently to make that work. Well, the text is different. Right, a little bit different. It's effectively the same theme, but it is different words. <laughs> Except the first part, well, the first part of the first section was you shall weep and lament. And then the second part, but the world shall rejoice. But then by the end, it's but your sorrow. And then the second part is shall be turned to joy. So it becomes your own joy. There is sort of a progression from sorrow to joy. Yeah, I wonder. It's, it's just an interesting little, pretty missable thing, I think, especially since the instruments, as they come in to double the voices, 
when they do, which does happen for every voice except for the first bass one. If you keep listening to the rest of those entrances, the instruments do still jump up the minor seven. They do, yeah. Well, that's kind of not to this point, but another point is that, or another argument is that maybe the first section of this chorus, it's you shall weep and lament. So maybe that rising minor seventh interval, which is very expressive, is a weep or a lament. And then the second time it happens here, it's just your sorrow. So maybe for Bach, pure sorrow is going down there instead of more expressively going up. Hmm. Yeah, that could be. But that's a pretty technical difference for something emotional, so it's hard to really say if that's really what it is. Yeah. Maybe he just wanted it to be different the second time. (laughs) Yeah, it could be that. (laughs) And that's legitimate. Of course. And of course, after that, uh, after those four entrances, we get the recorder pedal points again for a couple measures where they hold out a nice note and then go to the fast stuff. So the end of this fugue and the subsequent coda of the fugue is similar to the previous one, but here we get it in, as you would expect, the correct key, or really the key that we started. So now the bass pedal point hits us, F sharp, reminding us of the intro. The same texture in the strings and oboes, the dun 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 dun, while the recorder's going dun 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 dun. the singers now are repeating what they had in the previous coda but in a different key that kind of thing while an f sharp pedal point is happening underneath And then, like he did before, he barrels us into a conclusion. Again with those oboes sitting on that low B in a sort of sort of weird sonority there, on the third to last measure of music there. Until we reach the expected coda. But even then, he gives us a special little turn. We expect from Bach a Picardy third at the end, a major chord, right? B major. But he still gives us something really nicely unexpected, and that is the anticipation of the final note. We get in instruments and voices an anticipation of the D sharp that lands at the same time as a leading tone, which is the A sharp. very pleasing to the ear because both of those notes are sharp and they don't belong in the key of B minor. So they happen right on the pickup to the last chord and they get your ear ready to hear the major chord rather than surprising you with it. And there's also a there's also the tonic pitch there. Oh yeah, yep, yep. In the soprano and the recorder and the violin one. There's a lot going on in that last half beat. 
the anticipation of the B, right? As well as the anticipation of the D sharp. That includes a neighbor tone, but it's still an anticipation. So it's this. It's all like legal, but the, the combination together is pretty crunchy. Yeah, crunchy is a good word to describe it. And not having heard the D sharp yet makes it stick out a lot, which is really nice. And also Bach, yeah. kind of unusually at the very end, he's got the second violin and viola doubled. I think he wanted it to really come out. Isn't that weird? I don't think we see that very often. I don't think so. That's pretty unusual. Yeah, I like how the Netherlands Bach Society description page calls it Bach's most eccentric cantata movement, which is a bold statement, but it could, you know, hmm. this one could be in the running. Yeah, that's saying something for Bach, but the structure of this is, I think, pointing forward in time to sonatas, like for Mozart yes, and, yes. and Haydn, because you have a big opening section that ends in the dominant key. It starts in B minor, it ends in with an F sharp, and then it has a strange and wandering middle section, even though in this case it's short and it's a recitative, it's like an opera. It doesn't stay in, in time or anything. But developments in Mozart's time started out short too, and then by Beethoven they were huge. So I think this is the beginning of something. And then a return, sometimes starting in a different key so that you can work your way back to the original key until you get a final satisfying ending in the original key it's like early sonata form yeah well and even just some of the other elements in the rest of this cantata just to touch on one other movement the aria that has the trumpet intro is so mozart i mean like just listen to this little theme it's just so mozart The little question and answer phrase there. It's very gallant. Yeah. Like that sound that absolutely sounds like Mozart. Bach was really aware of the things that were becoming like more hip in his day. And he knew how to do them and he did them sometimes to impress or satisfy people. Although the weirder parts of this cantata surely annoyed the townspeople or the authorities in Leipzig because sometimes because of the operatic stuff. So maybe the conservative people didn't like this, but he definitely could work in either style. Yeah, but coming back to what we talked about before, which is the extreme complexity and how that paints the pictures of what the music is about, that was also, as we said, a turnoff for a lot of people, and it kind of makes this music almost for nobody. And I think that just goes back to what you said, Christian, which is that that is true. It is not for the audience. Bach was not writing operas, for an audience. He was writing cantatas for worship. It's completely different. And his job was to communicate the text with music in any way that he could. Including opera, if it suited it. Yeah. Or just, in this case, a tiny little section thrown in the middle. And now, here is that moment at the end of the interior recitative section, transitioning back into the fugue section.
this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this cantata, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance by the Netherlands Bach Society, led by artistic director Shinsuke Sato. And please subscribe on your podcast player so that you'll get our new episodes as they are released. All right, Christian, what's up for a moment of Bach next week? It's the fugue in D major from Well-Tempered Clavier, book two. Until next time, enjoy those moments. (laughs) ¶¶